now entering the Phantom Squad Podcast. Enjoy the madness. Hey everyone, this is another episode of the Phantom Squad Podcast. This week, my guest is YouTuber and all-around awesome geeky person, Council of Geeks, or Nathaniel Wayne. How's it going? Uh, not too bad. All, you know, all things considered, which I feel like is the caveat at the end of any I'm doing okay statement. Oh, yes. I just saw this uh, meme the other day, and it was like 2020 as a logo, and it was just a fist with a middle finger made out of the, made out of the numbers, and I was like, that's... That is hilarious. Yep, that uh, that tracks. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, I didn't realize till just a second ago. I'm actually wearing the Thirteenth Doctor shirt. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, where did you get your coat from? Because I've been looking to find it. Um, what for the Thirteenth Doctor? Yes. Uh, Amazon. I bought the entire outfit as one complete set off of Amazon. I did have to end up um, trading the coat back in because it ran slightly small in the shoulders on me, so I, I had to upgrade to a larger coat, but it, it was all one complete set. Awesome. Now, uh, with that, uh, do they make them as unisex? Or, like, I know with some boots I have to buy, like, bigger female sizes. Well, I mean, the thing is, the boots I already had, the boots are just, I, I live in Vermont, so the boots are just my boots. <laughs> I, I already owned those. I mean, they're they're men's boots, technically. And, and as far as the styling on the boots, I think you'd honestly have a easier time matching those boots in the men's section than the women's. Okay, so for like the coat and stuff, is that unisex or? Um, well, it depends on where you get it from. Whenever you, whenever you buy um, something like that, and if you are... Um, if you yourself are not of the same physical build as the uh, as the sort of normal intended audience for that costume, yeah. so in my case, I'm my big thing is my arms are longer and my shoulders are broader. Then these things are usually cut to be. So you know, always check return policies and you know take a look at reviews and see uh, if there are any comments about it. You know, running small or running large, and and that's sort of the best that you can do. And just always make sure that it's it the the seller will let you swap it out if it doesn't fit. Oh yeah, Which, for sure. Like I said, I, I I had to do for the coat. The rest fit fine, but the the coat <laughs> was too tight in the shoulder. Yeah, I had to do that for my my tenth doctor suit because I like I'm like you. I'm pretty much a triangle. I have my mom's chicken legs, but my dad's very broad shoulders. <laughs> so that suit is made for a very petite uh, shouldered man, and I'm like, I need the Hulk size. So I don't rip this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually when I got um, well I say I got somebody actually sent me that I think got it, got it for me off my wish list if I remember correctly um, I know definitely the coat was sent to me off the wish list I can't remember if the suit was that actually fit quite well or at least it did last time I wore it which was back in February and who knows now but <laughs> <laughs> yes Okay, uh, so what uh, got you into fandom, or what was the first thing that kind of sparked your interest on the, the geeky fandom lifestyle of 
ooh, what is this part of life and I want to get into it? Well, see, the thing is, like, I've loved things that are generally lumped together as being, you know, fandom things long before I, like, understood that fandom itself was a thing. So, like, I grew up on Star Wars. I grew up on Ghostbusters. I've, like, I've seen those movies. I can't remember watching those movies for the first time. That's how early and young I was getting into this stuff. But the thing was, like, because I'm old and the internet wasn't really a thing yet, you know, I would have, like, one, maybe two friends that I would talk to about some of it occasionally. It really wasn't until college that I sort of discovered fandom as an entity for any of this stuff. But I'd had the interests for those sorts of things for as long as I'd been taking in entertainment. Awesome. Yeah, it's probably about the same for me. Like, I met my best friend in middle school, and his parents were big Star Wars and geeky fans, and I was kind of in that same mindset, but I wasn't immersed in the world. And he was like, hey, I'm going to introduce you to this stuff like Star Wars and Spaceballs. And and then a few years after that, uh, a woman that's been to a couple conventions, I don't know if you ever heard of Dragon Con here in Atlanta. Oh, yeah, um, no, I'm... I've, I've had friends who have gone to Dragon Con. Uh, so I'm, you, I'm familiar. And she's been going, I think, to it since, like, the beginning, like, when it first started in, like, the, the 80s. And uh, she's like, let me introduce you to this to this world of, one, Doctor Who, because, you know, like, Star Wars. She's like, Doctor Who. And secondly, she's like, let me show you what is this thing called conventions. And I was like, what now? And it was, it was one of those things when I got there, it was like, I felt, I'm very AA shy introvert i know it's weird having to be a host of a podcast <laughs> but uh it was one of those i felt at home for the first time i was with my tribe yeah like the thing is so much of the part of it's again in addition to being old i also live in the middle of nowhere so like i didn't go to my first convention until 2016 so you know there there are elements that are that are often thought of to be of being core to, you know, being a geek and being in the fandom. I'm like, I got into that end of it like way later. Like I've always loved the thing, you know, in, yes. in cases in cases of stuff like Star Wars and Ghostbusters. Some stuff I found later, like Doctor Who, but like my love comes first for the thing, and it, then it's usually way later that I actually find the fandom around it, if I find it at all. Yes, for sure, for sure. Uh, I, I, I actually, I think part of that mentality that I don't actively seek out the fandoms and I usually, like, I'm usually content to just enjoy the things on their own and over time the fandoms tend to find me. I, it just occurs to me that some of that just might just be the fact that I'm an only child. I'm not, I, I, I'm used to processing stuff on my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely can say I had sort of an advantage when it came to that kind of stuff. Like, a lot of the things I got into, like Ghostbusters and Ninja Turtles. I'm the baby of five, so a lot of... We didn't have a lot of money, so I got a lot of hand-me-downs. So a lot of their VHS tapes, and they're like... my I have a picture of me and my brother's like 1980-something Teenage Ninja Turtle shirt that I kind of got passed down. So I kind of had that little thing going for me as well. Now, see, what I had... I, I, had, a, I had a grandmother who was a saint... Because the thing is, I didn't have, um, growing up, I didn't really have television. We had TV sets um, and VHS, and, you know, I had Nintendo and video games growing up, but my mother hated t 
television. She hated the medium of television. She didn't want it coming to the house. We didn't even have the rabbit ears to pick up the local channels because she hated the news and she hated commercials. But my grandmother had cable. So what she would do, she knew what shows I liked, either because, you know, I'd seen them when I was at her house or I'd seen them at friends' houses. So she, I, I've still got them packed away somewhere. I have these these recorded VHSs, recorded off the TV, reams of Thundercats and Ghostbusters and oh, He-Man and awesome. tons, like full movies taped off the Disney Channel back when it was a premium channel and was ad-free. And if it wasn't off the Disney Channel, she would sit through it and pause the recording so that she didn't record the commercials. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, sort of how, that's kind of what was my grandparents. They were very super, like, religious. So when we had to go to Blockbuster, I told this to the uh, the guys I had yesterday, they were, I, they were like, you have to pick a movie that's G-rated. And at Blockbuster, a G-rated movie was, like, the section was, like, this much. But they had a lot of, I got into, because of that, at their house, they had a lot of, like, old VHS tapes of, like, I Love Lucy and The Monsters and, like, all those older classic shows that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Or, like, the original Black and White Little Rascals. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. I had a a little bit of that. Actually, my... Star Trek is kind of a peripheral fandom for me. Like, there are things in Star Trek that I like, and I've seen all the movies, but there's no series of it that I've seen all the way through front to back. Yeah. But I do still like it, and the one I like most is Next Generation, and I think a lot of that was that one I used to watch with my grandfather. Um, there, there were a handful of shows that he would watch that I would also watch with him, uh, and that was the only sci-fi one. The, everything else was, like, sitcoms for him, but I... I I've, I have a lot of nostalgia for Next Generation because I I would watch that one with him. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I recommend if you like Next Generation, another one that a lot of people that I've had on the pod uh, all say that is one of their favorites is Deep Space Nine is a really good one. I've heard that. I couldn't get into that when it was airing because, like I said, I didn't have TV coming into my house. Yes. So I, I was... Very basically until I was working a job and could afford to buy season sets of stuff, I was very turned off by anything that was even close to a serialized story where like thing the status quo changed notably over time because I, I never saw stuff in order. I saw whatever random episodes were playing on the occasions when I was at my grandparents. So I always got turned off to stuff that appeared to have a continuing story, which DS9 did. Yes, but for sure. I, I've definitely had it recommended highly since then, <laughs> and it's it's on the pile with about 500 things that I'm sure I will like when I get around to them, but who the heck knows when that's going to be. Oh, yes, my buddy, it was the same thing. He's like, I thought quarantine was going to let me catch up on all these, but I did the total opposite. <laughs> I, I, I know I, I have a lot of friends who like started watching new stuff, and then... As it just dragged on, eventually you go back to comfort food, and that's and honestly, that's fine. That's probably good for you. I mean, like for me, YouTube is now my job. So, like, yes, I'm home, but I'm still working. Yes, <laughs> yes, that for sure. I know. Uh, like my go-to, I guess it's what I fall asleep to now. Is uh, my go-to is Bob's Burgers. I'll just pop on any season and just watch that one, which. If you haven't watched Bob Burgers, I highly recommend that one as well. I, I, I watched it for a little bit. I haven't... 
there's no currently airing show that I'm really all that current. Well, I guess Lovecraft Country, but yeah, there isn't any sort of you know main network show that I'm actually caught up on. There's some that I want to I want to catch up on Brooklyn Nine Nine, but I'm several seasons behind that. I have seen Bob's Burgers though. That uh, that was something that I caught probably most of the first couple seasons of, and I I did enjoy it. But it's it, it takes a lot for me to commit to something that I'm not gonna get video content out of. Yes, <laughs> that's the the ability to make a video out of what I've seen regrettably drives a lot of my viewing choices. Yes, for sure. One that I always go back to, I guess because it hits home with the fandom thing, because the one daughter's geeky, and she's quote-unquote, she's part of, it's it's their version of Milo Pony, uh, and they go to a convention, and she's like, I feel out of place, because it's a lot of grown men in pony suits. <laughs> and uh, there's a joke that the one character goes, he goes, yeah, Bob, she's going to go, there's a, uh, there's called a questicles. He's like, you know, cause they're grown men and they have testicles. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh dear. Oh dear God. So I'm like that joke. I'm like the fact they got that in that Fox said that was okay. Just made me laugh so hard. Ugh. And Nothing. just with that character, I rate relate to so much. Cause she does a lot of like fanfic and stuff. And I'm like, Finally, somebody who's portraying like that one weird side of fandom that nobody wants to talk about. Oh, that's that's Tina. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I'm I'm familiar with. The, I remember <laughs> Tina, and also I've, <laughs> I I have a, I have a friend who does a burlesque number uh, as Tina, which is it's it's awkward, <laughs> like on on purpose. Oh God, that sounds amazing. Because uh, I'm into that sort of thing. Because like one of my favorite musicals is Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm. And that, oh, my so mother great. introduced me to that movie when I was oh. 13. God bless her. Oh uh, yeah, the first time I've heard about it, and I've always seen it because like I'm a big I'm a Tim per, uh, a Tim Curry fanboy, and I just love everything that he's done. And my friend was like, "You've seen like one of his first roles, right?" And I was like. What do you mean? They're like, it's called Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I was like, I've heard that Time Warp song before. And we went to Dragon Con that year, and it was the best experience because they have a a live, uh, what is it? It's like a single, not really a sing-along. They have a live cast performing, but they're yeah, overdubbing they, with the movie, playing in the background. Yeah, they, they do the shadow cast thing, yeah. Yes, and seeing that and then having the audience all at the same time just singing the songs and doing the dances was like the perfect first time experience uh with See, that's that interesting because i actually my usual recommendation for people is if you're gonna go to that kind of thing is to not have it be the first time you've seen the movie because i think for <laughs> a lot of people that's actually overwhelming especially if you don't already know the movie and especially especially if the audience is doing the callbacks because if you're watching the movie for the first time trying to follow what's going on if people around you are shouting at the characters that's i mean that's a lot. Oh yes, especially like it was one guy. I I have seen part of it, and uh, I guess he didn't know the actual story, and he thought it was gonna be a sci-fi. And as soon as you seen Tim Curry just with the lingerie, he was like, "Whoa, what? What is this? What's going on here?" I was like, "Just wait, oh, just wait." Oh, you know what? I'd actually forgotten. Oh, this. I mean, this is this bums me out, but it's okay. So like. In March, what was supposed to happen was the burlesque troupe that I work with 
they were they were going to put up a Rocky Horror themed burlesque show, and I had a number as Brad. Ah. Oh. And I didn't get to perform it because everything shut down. Oh, gee. Oh, that sucks. It does. Like that. Speaking of the guy who plays Brad, I was watching. Uh, because you have young children. I was watching the movie, I think it's Teen Beach movie with my nephews, and the granddad is the actor who plays Brad in the original. I was like, wait, <laughs> is that? And I was Googling, I was like, holy crap, it's Barry, it's Barry. Oh my God. <laughs> he's a nice, God, he's tall. Oh, holy yeah. Because I, I, I met him, I've actually met four of the cast members because I went to Boston Comic Con Actually, specifically, I went there for Tim Curry, not even realizing other cast members were going to be there. And the performers for Brad, Magenta, and Columbia were all there. And so I met all three uh. of them. Uh, but God damn, that man's tall. Like, I had heels on. He was still taller than me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of lore with that. That I think there's a, like, same with Meatloaf. Like, a lot of people don't realize that was, like, one of his, like, before he was a rock and roll star, that was, like, his first... Thing and there was sort of he had that same that the guy had that I was sitting next to at the con had. He thought it was just a musical about he didn't really know what was going on. And when Tim walked out and drag, he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, what what is going on here? I didn't know we were." And then Richard O'Brien had to explain to him it's a parody on these sexualized sci-fi that fifties rebellion. And then he was like, "Okay, okay, I, okay." I was wondering what was going on for him. <laughs> yeah, I had heard the stories that he that he did not realize what he had signed on for. <laughs> Which, I mean, like, is understandable. The guy's only got one scene and one song, and I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have been sent the whole script. He probably just learned the song, you know, saw the scene, but it, it wouldn't have had full descriptions of, like, what Frank looked like, because that would have been in Frank's introductory scene and all that. Yes. So he, he, I believe that he had no clue. <laughs> Yeah, I think the story goes, like, when he, to, for the role, like, because it's so many words in such a short amount of sentences, every other actor they got uh, couldn't say every single word, so they were mumbling a little bit, and he said the reason that Richard picked him is because he was the only singer that could sing every single word and make it pronounced so you could hear every single word that was in the song. He does enunciate that song quite well, yeah. So I was like, oh, that is awesome. And then I think in an interview, I'll have to, to link it to you. There's a, He shows the actual jacket. He still has Eddie's jacket and everything. And I think like, awesome. he's like some of these are missing. He's like, yeah, this is missing. This is missing. Because uh, in the motorcycle scene, they dropped a motorcycle on me by accident. <laughs> so uh, with that story, because it was a World War II, and they had to get a guy, the ramp that it went on at an angle, and I guess it had fell, and it landed on the stunt guy or something or him it was either him or the stunt guy. And so if the scene, if you're watching when he's going down like this in the stairwell, they actually have meatloaf in a wheelchair with the, they took the handlebars off with a camera on front and then they were pushing him in a wheelchair down the thing with the camera. Oh goodness. Nice. Yeah. I, I have to send you the link to the, the documentary. It was, I think it was for the, the 40, the 40, whatever they did the anniversary thing. Oh my God, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's, it's great. So for other fans, would you say I know that Doctor Who is up there? Is that probably your top three compared to like Star Wars and um, Star Trek? Or I mean, 
I, I certainly talk about it the most, but I think it's just because I, I have the most things to say about it. And uh, a lot of that just has to do with the fact that, you know, as much as I love Star Wars, I've only ever gotten into the movies. So unless there's a new movie coming out, I don't have much to say. I don't really watch the shows. I could never get into the extend, extended universe stuff. So, and, you know, other things that I love, like Ghostbusters is my favorite movie of all time. There is very rarely Ghostbusters news to talk about. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I the... The thing with Doctor Who, and it might it might be like my favorite fandom to be involved in, and my favorite sort of show to watch. But like a, an element of that is the fact that not only are there new episodes coming out, you know, as, as time goes on, but there is this massive back catalog of the classic stuff for me to get into. And I've also like. I don't normally get into ancillary material, but I have gotten into Big Finish audio, so that's a whole other world to get into as well. So there's just there's, and also just the just the nature of the show and how much it changes over time. There's just so much more to talk about with this show without having to get into behind the scenes drama nonsense because I don't really like talking about that. Yes, by and large, it's I feel like. Um, no, not all of them, but some of the channels that talk about things like Star Trek between seasons of new stuff, they dig up drama or they dig up rumors that somebody made up and talk about it as if it's true. And I'm like, I don't have to do that with Doctor Who because there's still this massive amount of stuff that's just the Doctor Who material that I have yet to get to. <laughs> yes, yes. I think, and one thing that I liked about the, I think the, thing that you said on one of your video reviews was that I never thought about before and I like the how you came up with that the the whole message of everybody's like oh I don't like that doctor I don't like that doctor was the message of the show promotes change and that change is okay and that you can adapt you may not like it but what's happening at the time but it will get better and change is there yeah I mean I think you're Worst case scenario, if you don't like a Doctor's Era and if you feel the need to bail and stop watching, all right, come on back when we've got a new Doctor. Try it again. I, I, I don't I don't think it has the ability to alienate as hard as, I hate to keep making this comparison, but say Star Wars. So oh, like, no, no, we're when, all, everybody loves Star Wars. <laughs> uh, like, when the main saga went in the directions it did, in a direction that ticked off a lot of the fans, like, as much as people can talk about the, the TV shows and the comics and whatever else, Star Wars ultimately is the movies. So if the movies go off the rail for you, then, like, what are you supposed to do now? <laughs> yes. Whereas Doctor Who, even if the show goes off the rail, like, well, I mean, pause, and that can still suck to do, to like to take a time out from something that you normally like, but like there will be a reason for you to come back and try again, and it'll feel like a fresh start, as opposed to like having to forgive all this other stuff, because the, the show's very good about not carrying around too much baggage when it does era changeovers. Yes, uh, and that's one thing I, I love about it. Like I said, as you said, just the change... To promote that message is, is just a great message. Yeah, I, I mean, Doctor Who is full of great messages because I I don't I don't know if you realize this, dear listeners, but 
Doctor Who is political and has always been political. Yes, you learned something today, didn't you? <laughs> but I, I, I think the show has always had wonderful messages, both you know, deliberately inserted into episodes as primary themes or just by the nature of the way the show works. There's a, just a wonderful sense of renewal and things don't end, they just change. It's just, it's nice. I love it. Yes, like I think a lot of people with that, a lot of people forget that the show initially in 1963 was meant as a children's educational TV series. I know, it's, it's so funny to me that when they, and, and then like a few years later when they made the decision to replace William Hartnell with, um, with Patrick Troughton and decided to do it in, in the show as opposed to just like, Yo, know, he's back and different, and we won't explain it. I they accidentally stumbled on the perfect way to create a, a show and a and a concept and a character that never has to end. Yes, <laughs> I and I love that it was by accident. Like they, there was no way they thought, oh, this will keep going for decades. They're like, well, no, this is how we keep go. We, we keep it going right now. Yeah, this is how we this is how we make two seasons. They they want thirty six episodes. Uh, let's get another guy and just make it where we change him out. <laughs> yeah, like that. They were just trying to cover their butts in that moment, but that it's they accidentally stumbled on. I'm sorry, something absolutely brilliant. Yes, for sure. And I think like there's a uh, for one of the regenerations. It's a uh, I don't know if you know or it's a joke that's in the fandom uh, because they couldn't get uh, Colin Baker back it's if you see the regeneration he's on his back or he's on his stomach and it's literally uh sylvester mccoy in a wig and so in the midst of the trend they just get him to turn over and it's sylvester mccoy yeah they, they have him turn over and there's kind of a yeah. wobble effect on the screen and oh look it's somebody else i mean like i don't blame colin baker for not coming back they they shafted him hard so I don't really blame him for going, no, I'm not going to show up to, to get knocked on the floor and die. Screw you. <laughs> yes, which I've met him through a convention we have here, who, who Lanta. Uh, I guess I had Alan is the guy who set it up, and now they're, he's really good friends with Colin, and that was his doctor. And I have a cool story how I met Colin by accident. I used to work the con suite, which does like the snacks and food and stuff for people who don't want to buy meals at the, the hotel. And I'm sitting there on my little break, and I just hear, hello, chap. Uh, in the, you know, just a British term. And I turn, and it's Colin Baker. And I was like, oh, my oh. God, hi, sir. How are you doing? Oh, oh, my gosh. And then I have a funny story to that part, is he had some airline peanuts. So he was like, oh, do you want some peanuts? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, cool. And so I always make the joke. I'm like, I'm the only person that can say I've had the doctor's nuts in my mouth. <laughs> Like I said, it's one of those stories I'm like, let me lead you up, and then, then the kicker is going to get you with that joke. Oh, man. Yeah, he's a very, even though he's been shafted by the company, same with Eccleston that we've realized is he loves, he's came to love it because of he sees how much us fans love him, and Colin was great. It's Even though a lot of people say that he wasn't a great doctor, he was a, himself is a great guy. I mean, 
here's the thing. That's again one of the beauties of like say Big Finish is I now appreciate the Sixth Doctor, and I appreciate that the problem wasn't Colin; it was the writing, and it was the the overall tonal direction of the series at the time. Because you listen to him on Big Finish, and he's phenomenal. He's great. Like, and they did it without completely changing the fundamentals of Colin's Doctor. He's still a little bit grouchy. He's still arrogant, but they just they balance to those elements in Big Finish so much better than on the show. Where I, frankly, I really couldn't stand him. But again, I now know it's not a problem with the actor. There were writing choices made that, like, this didn't work. And yeah, with Eccleston, I, I, I feel really privileged with this because earlier this year, again, just before everything shut down, uh, I was at Gallifrey One in L.A., which was the first dedicated Doctor Who convention he'd ever been to. And I got to see how, like, I think he was genuinely kind of taken a... T- uh, a little uh, off guard for how much everyone there loved him. I think in his mind, the experience of Doctor Who was what he had experienced on set and with, you know, the heads of the BBC or whatever. I don't think because he was at the start of it and the fandom wasn't fully reestablished yet. To him, what Doctor Who and what the experience of it was for a long time was what it was like shooting that series, which was hard for him. But I'm just so glad that he got to come and get to experience and realize, oh, that isn't everything Doctor Who is. There's all of this. And he just, he, he, there was so much love thrown his way. Uh, and the last day of the convention was actually his birthday. And uh, the biggest hall they had packed with as many people as were allowed in there by the fire marshal. <laughs> all singing happy birthday to him. Uh, and he got on the mic and he said, with such sincerity, this is the best birthday I've ever had. And I believed him and it was wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. I think my the buddy Alan that ran that convention, he was there at the same con and he was like, I was so mad. He's like, I had panels I had to monitor, so I was not there to do the birthday. And I was like, oh. I was like, I knew I had heard somebody say it. And I, I think it might have been your channel. And he was like, no, it wasn't me. And he was like, I'm, I'm mad I missed it. But you can definitely tell, like you said, he had that very... Uh, what is the the reference? Uh, her name, uh, the Sally Fields. They like me. They really like me. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, and I, I I um I appreciate the the difficulty with panels, like because I was on a panel and I I had to very carefully schedule my uh, my picture uh, that I had arranged for to get taken with him. So yeah, d- trying to juggle panels and other stuff going on is a pain. Yes. <laughs> and like for him, especially because he's known around the circuit as the guy you give the British actors to to entertain when they don't have time. <laughs> so they're like, hey, we uh, they're here for an extra day in this town. Can you take care of these and babysit the actor? <laughs> I mean, somebody's got to do it. Which he's actually uh, I'll uh, get when I get the link from him. He's actually making a book right now of all the stories that. uh that he's come over the years, like he was watching Sylvester McCoy at Dragon Con one year, and they went to the Jimmy Carter Museum, and there is uh, he, Sylvester McCoy. The story goes, he told me the Sylvester McCoy thought it'd be funny to have him as the doctor have a picture behind Jimmy Carter's Oval Office desk. 
And uh, there's a rope off so you can't get into the room. And he said, Sylvester McCoy kind of just, uh, I'm sort of a celebrity and just walked over the rope. And the alarm went off. And he's like, you just hear him, the old man just, oh, 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 geez, oh, geez. And hopped over the thing back again. And when the guy came, the security guy, Sylvester was like, oh, oh, I had a paper and it dropped over there and I needed to pick it up. And we're sorry. And the guy was like, well, if that happens again, just call us. And I told him, I was like, that is such a seventh doctor right there. Oh, uh, ooh, alarm. Oh, no, no, no. Just just this thing. Don't mind me. Yes. So, he, so apparently there's the, yes, yeah, so there, he said there's the running joke of uh, Sylvester McCoy almost got arrested at the Jimmy Carter Museum. Oh, uh, which is so great. And I told him I'm looking forward to the book. I was like, if that's just one of your stories that you have, I'm looking forward to this book. And he is very, he's one of those guys that in our little group here in Georgia, we call him our Doctor Who encyclopedia person. Yes. And he, uh, he, like I said, he ran this Doctor Who convention for 15 years and, uh, he kind of, like I said, he's got these books and he, he does these ranking books that uh, you'd probably like to look at it kind of like episode by episode, decade by decade. Because mm-hmm. I asked him, I was like, it's not fan fiction. He was like, no, no. He's like, it's reference books. He's like, you have to, BBC is very particular. If it has Doctor Who, if you are adding to the universe, you better pay for that license or you will get a lawsuit. <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, I believe it. So he was like, yeah, he's like, I try to stick to just the, uh, I'm going to encyclopedia my thoughts on episodes. I don't want to deal with their legal team. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. BBC no. is one of the pains in my ass for copyright <laughs> nonsense. Yeah, I would. I was thinking about that because I know a lot of times you use like intro songs and stuff for things. Uh, so do, have you had any trouble with that or like demonetization Issues or anything well, like that? here's the thing. Well, here's the real annoying thing. It is different with every copyright holder. Some of them are very laid back. Some of them are dicks. So there isn't any universal rule about what you can and can't get away with. It completely depends on who holds the copyright. So, for instance, in my experience at least, Disney and Warner Brothers are very laid back and they really don't care. I think because in both cases they understand that anyone who is – unless you're uploading the entire thing unedited. But if you're <laughs> using clips to talk about stuff, that's basically free marketing yeah, for them. Yeah. They seem to understand that. Paramount – oh, my God. So Paramount, they are so bad. They have copyright claimed videos of mine that only had a still image. No video, no audio. There was a still image, and they copyright claimed it. Oh my so at, God. This, at this point, if I talk about anything that Paramount owns, at a point where I would normally put up a picture, I, I have I have this thing saved. It says, image not available. <laughs> because screw those people. Now, uh. the, BBC, the BBC... So I've, I've, I've learned now through talking to some other Hootubers and also through some trial and error that... With the BBC, as long as you keep any individual clip under 10 seconds, they will leave you alone. However, any clip that goes past 10 seconds, not only will they claim it, 
they will not respect you disputing them on uh, fair use grounds. I have a video that isn't even about Doctor Who, but I used a clip from Doctor Who to illustrate a point. I was talking about the uh, the, tro- the bury your gaze trope, and I had a clip involving Bill. And because that clip went over 10 seconds, they claimed it. I disputed it on fair right use. They did not release the claim. And so it escalated to the point where my only option was to be prepared to take them to court, which I can't do. Yeah. So if BBC claims your stuff, they will not let it go. And so, like, to this day, BBC gets the money, gets the ad revenue on that video. Oh, that is crazy. If BBC claims your stuff, give up. Re-edit it so you do something that they don't claim. <laughs> yes. um, and the other general thing is movies are movies and TV, you have a little more leeway than music. Music gets claimed like that for even seconds worth. Oh, that's crazy. Because I know uh, it's only like, a, I think like 20 seconds. Because I always heard the rule, because I had a marketing class, and the rule was always like 30 seconds or less. No, see, that's the thing. There is no rule. There are rules of thumb. So, like, I mentioned the 10-second thing with BBC. Yeah. That's not a hard rule. That just happens to be how they've set up their copyright bots. They've set up their bots to ignore anything under 10 seconds. That doesn't mean they can't claim it. If they wanted to, they could still claim things under 10 seconds. So there's no magic number with, with movies or music that... That has you free and clear. It's just that if you do something short, there's a good chance, at least with movies. Again, my experience with music is don't even bother. But in my experience with movies, if you keep the clips short, then basically they are accepting, okay, we do own that. But the clip you're using is so short that obviously you're not just you're not just throwing our stuff up to get to make money off of it. But Strictly speaking, you could have a one-second clip up, and they would be within their rights to copyright claim it. Uh. Most of them don't because they realize that's a bad look, um, but they could. So there's no magic number, and and all of these are just industry standards. Yeah. None of this, none of this is legal precedent. I mean, there, there's a legal precedent for fair use, but you actually have to go to court to fight on that basis. Yeah, I guess it might be because I'm not big enough yet. But what I what I use for my, because my little intro, it's like "Welcome to the Fantasy Squad Podcast," and the overlay, it's just I think like twenty seconds of the uh, of Tom Morello's uh, guitar solo uh, from "Like a Stone," the little wow 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 sort of part. Well, podcasts are kind of a different beast because most of the platforms that you can put podcasts on don't have the bot setups to to comb for copyrighted material the way something like YouTube does. So, like uh, on the on my podcast feed right now, I'm doing um, a rewatch on Farscape with uh, with Jesse Gender, and I use the intro and outro music for that because, in my experience, I've never had claims on podcasts probably partly because my podcasts aren't monetized in any way (laughs) so even if they did claim it they're not going to get anything i don't have sponsors on the podcast there's no ads run i make no money off that so what the heck are you even claiming you're like we're no joe rogan (laughs) yeah unless unless you're gonna tell me that i have to take it unless you're gonna like do a d uh dmc takedown notice on me there's no incentive for anybody to copyright claim my podcast because there's no money to be made off that Yes, for sure. Uh, I'll definitely uh, get you to send the link down as well, because uh, 
I tried finding it the other day and it didn't show anything up. Is it? Is it's uh, it's fire and water, isn't it? No. Um. So the 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 what the frell podcast uh, that is on the Council of Geese podcast feed, which is its own thing. Um, so no, that's not on Fire and Water. The one I do on Fire and Water is one I do with my partner Liz. That's Tough Like a Girl, um, where we look at uh, graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists. Oh, cool. Um, but yet, no, the the Council of Geeks podcast feed has been a lot of different things at different times, as I basically have decided over time. Well, I've either come to a natural end of something I was doing, or I decided I don't want to do this anymore, but I didn't want to stop using the feed. So, like, originally it was, like, longer versions of conversations that I had cut down for the YouTube channel, and then I had I did a series called 90s Comics Retrial um, until I covered Executioner Song from X-Men, and then I'm like, I can't do this anymore. This, this killed me. Um, and... Then I did an episode-by-episode episode rewatch of Cowboy Bebop for a while. I was doing classic Doctor Who reviews for a little bit, and now it's What the Frell. So the, that that feed, as all over the place as my YouTube channel can be, that feed really has, like, it, th- there's no rhyme or reason for what it is now versus, oh, God, and the other thing that I did for a while... I had a show that I actually really liked and I was really proud of and I wish could have continued, but the logistics fell apart and they have not pulled together again. I did a show called Go Home Hollywood, You're Drunk, <laughs> uh, which, I, which I did with a friend of mine just going over the week's news in Hollywood stuff. You know, what what new trailers had dropped, the box office numbers, what persons have been cast in what roles, et cetera, et cetera. And I enjoyed that a lot, but... It, he uh, he ended up having a kid. I already had my kid at that point, but he had a kid, and suddenly scheduling got a lot harder. And we took what was supposed to be a break, and that was, I think, two two or three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> There's part of me that wants to try and revive it, but the thing is now because of because of the plague. There's almost nothing to report. Like so few things are filming anymore. Oh. The, only, the only thing there is to talk about is. What one of the movies that was supposed to come out months ago has a new release date announced? I'm like, I can't make a podcast out of that. Oh yeah, there's a one the the there's a network I'm trying to get a part of of podcasts, and their main show, the guys who run the network, they do a regular pop culture, and they do a Doctor Who one, and the Doctor Who one. Um, they are like, okay, uh, for the Doctor Who news, we already know already. There's nothing, so we're just gonna review an older classic series episode. Yeah. yeah. This. I mean, there really isn't anything to report, and and even when stuff happens, like you can't, you you can't do an hour on. Hey, it looks like that holiday special will be on Christmas this year. <laughs> or I think they were like, it's just going to be like a five minute segment. We're just going to talk just a few seconds on Graham and Ryan leaving. <laughs> or they refer to as now the uh, the Graham show. I, I, I did milk about a 14-minute video out of that topic, so, like, I, I shut them out. Uh, I'm definitely, we were, me and uh, the person we're talking about, definitely, we're looking forward to knowing them. They'll probably add another companion. I hope they don't. Looking forward to I seeing Jody. And, I'm using Jody and Yaz. I just want to see that relationship. Yeah, build. I really hope they don't add another companion because one of my 
issues, especially in Series 11. It became slightly less of an issue in Series 12, but it really Series 11. They should not have introduced four new characters right off the bat, because when you get a new Doctor, you effectively have a new character. And the offshoot of that was, A, I felt like none of them got enough individual time for me to really get a handle on who they were. I, I honestly felt like I understood Graham the best, then Ryan, and then I was like, I don't really get this Doctor or Yaz all that much by the time Series 11 was done. And then even when you get into Series 12, where you've now had two seasons worth of time with them and you've gotten to know them better, but what I've come to realize, um, and this is also part of the reason I have a problem connecting with Peter Davison's Doctor, the fifth Doctor, Yes, a lot of how... I relate to the Doctor has to do with their relationship with the Companion and what that connection says about them. And Jodie doesn't have a definitive Companion. She doesn't have a definitive relationship for me to look and examine and think about. She has three superficial is too strong a word, but she has three fairly surface level relationships. And that doesn't tell me much as one deep relationship would. So I, I'm really hoping they don't add more in, and I really hope that they just build on the Doctor and Yaz. Uh, although, let me be clear about this, I do not ship them. Don't do that. Thank God. I'm glad you just said that. I was like, ooh, I don't want to be the one, the bad one to say this. I want them to build a relationship, but I don't want them to be like Netflix and just make it a... Make it a home... Make it, you know, make it a gay relationship just because they want to have that on the show. Well, I let me also be clear. I don't ship the Doctor ever. Like, in my head canon, the Doctor is asexual. So I don't want the Doctor romantically paired off, especially not with a companion, ever. Yes. I, I kind of gave a pass to River Song because she was so sporadic. She wasn't constant. She just popped up now and then. I'm like, okay, I'll let that one. And especially like when she was with Matt Smith, that was much less sexually. Like she was flirting all to hell, but he was so awkward. I'm like, I can, I can work with this. this yes. But, but I, so when I say I don't ship the Doctor and Yaz, it's not because of them specifically. It's because I don't ship the Doctor ever. Yes, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you too, because I know a lot of people with the gender swap have said they're like so now that the doctor's a woman does that make does that make river song a lesbian or does this and i'm like i agree with you i think the doctor is just an asexual person yeah i mean funny thing like i did a video on that a couple of years ago basically saying that okay given that as much as i don't like it the doctor has shown attractions at various points and they have always been towards women is the doctor now gay i Yes, but only technically. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of the kind of the conclusion I came to. But like, and and also like with River, like, does this make River a lesbian? Like, okay, if you think River didn't swing in every <laughs> conceivable direction yes. before that happened, then you <laughs> don't know River Song. Uh yes. And then there's also there's another theory with it that I love that River Song and Miss Frizzle from Magic School Bus is the same person. They're like, the hair, she travels, she has the quote, ah. And I was like, hmm. And then I also love the theories that go in with that, that Miss Frizzle and Mary Poppins are both Time Lords. Yep, I've, I've seen those. And of course, Santa's a Time Lord. <laughs> yes. He, 
I mean, he'd have to be. How else would it, would everything fit in that bag? It's bigger on the inside. For yes, for sure. I think they make sort of a joke like that to the when it came out. It's the I always call him the uh, the the biker Santa, uh, biker Santa and Twink uh, Jack the Frost movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, Rise of the Guardians. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty good, but that that's I've always loved the running jokes about uh like I said, uh biker Santa and Twink Jack's <laughs> Jack Frost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I I, I, uh, I cannot argue on either point. <laughs> uh so another thing that I want to talk to you about as well, um, just about yourself in general, because I know you're a very interesting person and you have a very unique story. <laughs> I mean, like, can you specify? Like, well, narrow it down for me a little? Well, I mean, just, like, your role, how, I guess, like uh, Nicole said, just having another person who is, you know, either gender queer, or gender queer or gender fluid or some of that and have that representation that you don't normally get in any sort of media and that you still have the amount of subscribers that you have after coming out with that. I mean, like, honestly, that was probably one of the most empowering experiences that I had. So I came out on the channel in January of 2018. The the video, I, I came out at the very end of the Q&A video <laughs> that I made to celebrate 10,000 subscribers. And I... Put I, and I put it at the very end, thinking only people who actually like me are going to co- are going to come this far and this deep into the thing. So I was kind of hedging my bets a bit. And so I came out as gender fluid at the end of that video. I posted that video. I, I made it live and I went to bed <laughs> because I knew if I posted it during the day, I was just going to sit there staring at the comments all day long. So I posted and I went to bed. And I came back in the morning and I was expecting a subscriber drop anywhere like from one to 500 people to just be gone. Um, and it didn't happen. And there was a absolute avalanche of supportive comments on that video. And that, like that did a lot to sort of empower me and, and give me the confidence that like, I've been doing something right with the viewership I've been cultivating. Um, Actually, I had this conversation on the uh, Galactic Yo-Yo podcast uh, a little while ago, but in so many ways uh, on YouTube, the tone of the comment section and the tone of the people who watch you is largely dictated by by the YouTuber. So, and I think that's why a lot of the really angry, shouty YouTubers have some really toxic comment sections that's not to say i never have to deal with that i do i monitor my comment (laughs) sections very carefully because of that but as far as like the people who are always around this where the standard is for my comment section like when that went as well as it did i'm like i've done a good job at at giving the tone i wanted um but broadly speaking just because I, i guess i haven't said it out right on this podcast so i identify as gender fluid which means that my sense of self in regards to my gender doesn't stay put it meanders around so um i have on occasions called myself trans but i'm very careful about that i'm i i'm not a trans woman um i but i if you're using trans as an umbrella term which 
theoretically it's supposed to be, then I do fall under that umbrella. I could, you could also place me under non-binary because I don't fit solidly into either of the normal binary options of male or female. So I've been questioning my gender since I was about 11. I'm 38 now. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's been the scenic route for me. Um, and I think that part of that has to do with my nature of it being fluid for me. I think if I definitively knew, oh, because I was assigned male at birth. So if I definitively knew, oh, I'm supposed to be a woman that I would have gotten where I am now or some, or something like it, like a decade ago, but I didn't cause it's had, it's been this slow thing of just, well, I'm trying to figure out who I am and who I am doesn't stay put. So I have to try and figure that out. And then even once I get a sense of that, the overall thing can drift. Like my, my default sort of my neutral has been drifting more feminine over the last three or four years or so. Um, to the point that actually <laughs> earlier today on my Twitter, I had had my pronouns listed as uh, she, he, they, no preference and I took off he and took off the no preference thing. So now it's just she, they. So, like, there's been drift and it's headed in a direction. But, like, the the whole thing for me is is a continuing journey and and is also evolving at the same time. So it's not like I'm not here impatient going like, oh, why can't I figure out what I am? It's like, no, I know what I am right now. I might be something else tomorrow and I'll deal with that when I get there. And, you know, there might be an eventual trajectory to where all this is going. But, like, I know I know me today, and that's enough. Now, with that, did it, that now that you know that, you know exactly, like, for what you, lack of words, you know who, who you are now, did that affect your, your, like, your, like, your preference for, like, the people that you were partners with? Or did you kind of no. already have that? No, um. My my sense of gender has has been has no direct tie into my sexual preference. So, like my sexual preferences favor the feminine. They always have. That hasn't changed. I seriously doubt that ever will change. So there is often, and this is not to say that it's not tied together for some people, because it can be. Um, and, and I have known people with shifting senses of gender who find themselves, their attractions change with their sense of self. So, like, I know that's a thing that can happen. But for me personally, they've never really been tied together. Um, I'm more used to dealing with men when I'm in a feminine mode because that's when they'll sometimes hit on me. But other than that, my own preferences don't really wander that much. Cool, 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 cool. That's good. That's good. I was just wondering that too. And another thing that I, uh, I think our listeners would be interested in too, for people uh, of your same situation and mindset, because uh, I know you have sort of smaller children, how was it with that process of, you know, them knowing you so long as this one way and kind of getting them into this is who I am now and trying to, you know. Well, see, the thing is, like, it. As much as, as I have changed over the last few years, like me not being manly is her normal. So like about the only thing that we, that 
her mother and I went out of our way to do because at at that point um, I hadn't really adopted the the idea and the term of gender fluid yet, and I was um, I but I was still like a, a performing drag queen, and you know there, so there was still these things about myself, and so when my when my uh, daughter was two, he had, we had her watch me get in drag she watched me put on the makeup she watched me put on a wig so that she understood i might look different but it's still me and to her i am dad no matter what i look like i am dad to her that relationship does not change now that's for me i know that there are people especially more binary trans people who actually do want their um their children to not refer to them as as the parental term that identifies their uh the gender they transitioned out of um so like and i and i respect that but because i don't have massive dysphoria that's thankfully never really been a part of my journey for her like if you were to ask her, like, maybe if she stopped and thought about it, maybe she'd go, oh, yeah, I guess my dad does wear, you know, lipstick and stuff more now than than before. But, like, I'm still dad. Who I am to her doesn't change. Awesome. I'm glad, and like I said, I'm glad that you have been able to have that experience and that, like I said, a lot of people, like, that, trying to get my words together <laughs> a lot of people uh would like that insight because i know sometimes that can be a challenge especially because i know there's always that the people that have the voices of you're doing this is going to change how your child thinks about the world and this is going to force them to be this way and and i i truly don't believe that at all oh no i don't either but here here is what i will say if you know that there is something about yourself that might, I'm trying to see now, I'm trying to think of words. (laughs) So like for myself, at the time that I, for lack of a better term, came out to my kid, I guess, um, I was mainly just identifying as a cross-dresser, but I knew that that was a fundamental part of who I was. And so what I didn't want to do was I didn't want to hide that because A, that that automatically puts a stigma on it and a sense of shame. Um, and thankfully for me, uh, even when I identified as a crossdresser, it was never a kink or a sexual thing. Yeah. Um, cause if that's the case, if, if gender play is part of your sex life, don't introduce your kids to that for the same reason you don't introduce them to any part of your sex life. <laughs> yes. Um, but if, if it is not, if it's not completely compartmentalized as that, I think that as hard as it can be, you are better off acclimating them to that as early as you feel capable of doing because you are going to set their no- their normal for the, how- the home that you are in. And even if you decide, well, I-, I don't think they're ready to know or whatever you- conclusion you come to, you put that off and the more formed their idea of who you are and who their family is gets solidified. And so when eventually they find out because they will, whether it's when they're six or 16, they will eventually find out you're then throwing a brick 
into this worldview that they've been building for a while that did not incorporate this fundamental piece of information about you. And I think that's way more traumatic than just acclimating someone to the fact that, yes, sometimes I look like this. And sometimes I'll tie my hair up and I won't put it on earrings and I'll, I'll wear a vest and a dress shirt. And sometimes I look like that. And that's fine too. Because if it's only weird, if you treat it like it's weird and if you make it weird by not talking about it or by, or by talking about it too much, like sitting down to have long conversations about gender with your young kids, you've made it weird. Just exist. Just exist around your kids. They will, it will be their normal. Yeah, that's that's great. I'm, like I said, I've never. That's a good point. I haven't thought about it in that way in since. Yeah, and I mean, the, the other thing is, you need to prepare to just not think about it all. What other people are going to think, because that's I, I know. And like to be fair, I I have the privilege of. You know, living in a in a community and having a family or whatever that is accepting of me, or in the case of the community, I, at worst doesn't give a damn. So, you know, I I don't have to worry about you know threats or harassment against me. So, like, understand where you live and things like that. Be realistic, but barring legitimate safety concerns. You need to not worry about, well, will people think I'm trying to indoctrinate my kid? Yes, some people will. But you know what? It's not their kid, so screw them. Yes, uh, that's that's one thing. Like with my sister, they're very conservative. But one thing that I love that she did with my nephew, because one time he came home, he's in middle school now, and they have clubs. And one of the clubs listed was a LGBT club. And she's like, I don't agree I'm not a part of that, and I don't agree with that, but let me ask you these questions. And she went through each letter, and even the, the other ones that have been added, and she's like, do you feel this way? Do you not feel this way? And then she went down the line, and she was like, if you don't feel these way, in my and as my parental over you, I don't feel that this club would be right for you. I like that, even though that was not, she, like, she, we have family members that are like that, and we love them, and we, my grandma, who was super Christian and religious, and I, this is how I live my way as a Christian, is I not fully to what she said, but her thing was, I don't like the things that you do, but I'm not going to love you any less. And, like, I, I, again, I, I have a, a certain amount of privilege for not ever having to have dealt with that. I, I wasn't raised religious. My, my family isn't especially religious. I, like, my, my grandparents went to church on occasion. My mother has gone through bouts of going to church, but I was never raised uh, in any religion. I think I've like, been to church for anything other than a wedding or a funeral three times in nearly 40 damn years. <laughs> so, you know, that's never been a part of my life. But I do appreciate that there is difficulty in trying to find the balance between your faith and the people around you. I, I, I do have friends, and I, I do have people who matter to me who are religious. And so if, if you can handle that 
tension that can sometimes exist, depending on how you choose to approach your faith, without coming away with a conclusion that is going to actively harm anybody, you're you're good by me. Yeah, for me, me and my uh, me and my girlfriend, we we have the same view because we both grew up that way, and we both grew up super conservative, like very strict Baptist. But how we feel about it is we were both like bullied and we both had trauma with ourselves and our lives and our image. And we, we both believe, yes, we believe in the religion, but to other parts that we don't agree with, like we believe that you should love everyone and that you should let somebody be who they are, even if you don't fully agree and just love them. And that, what, what is it that, uh, yeah, just love them for who they are. And that I don't want to, persecutor I don't want anybody to feel in, not included or anything because I know how that feels and I don't want anybody to ever feel that feeling of being you know shunned away because of something that you're into or something that you feel about yourself that others might not like I we both agree with that and we we just have this philosophy of yes we are a part of this religion but we're going to love you no matter what and no matter your lifestyle or anything like that yeah and that I I think that's that's a healthy way to approach it because look no matter what um, you think happens after your time on this earth while you're here we've all still got to live together so if if we could do that peaceably that'd be great yeah it's it's just the philosophy I have a button on one of my uh, my emo vests with all the buttons and it's just simply just says don't be a prick with a little cactus and I'm like that's what I live my my everyday little thing is don't be a prick either to somebody or don't let somebody be a prick to you. I, not only can I get behind that, that is the fundamental guiding philosophy for how I handle my comment section. <laughs> Whether I, like, I will get accused of deleting negative or comments that disagree with me. And yeah, statistically, most of the ones I delete are, are ones that disagree with me, but it's because they're being jerks. My rule of thumb is don't be a jerk. If you're being a jerk at me or at a commenter or needlessly being abusive towards, you know, a writer or an actor or whatever, because that was in the topic of the video, you're being a jerk. I'm getting rid of the comment. You do it enough, I'll get I'm getting rid of you. And I and I have deleted comments from people who clearly agree with me, but they're being jerks. Stop it. Don't do that. That is one thing I love fandom and fandom has so much great stuff, but they're I don't know if it's just because of the the internet and what's came about but it's just I don't remember it when I was younger I, I may because I just didn't have a phone at the time because I grew up a little poor and we didn't always have like phones and stuff but when I got on the internet I noticed there was a lot more especially in these more recent years there's a lot more toxicity and fan different not just calling out certain I know there's one fan like Rick and Morty I'm just going to call it out has very very toxic people but there is, that's just not that one. There's a lot of just over the spectrum of more toxicity than I remember probably even five years ago. Well, see, here's the thing that there, there's a couple of factors. The first is, in my, in my experience, uh, none of this is new. It is harder to avoid thanks to the Internet. But the internet didn't create this because I can remember being in grade school in the 80s and 
seeing younger kids in a younger grade um, who were fans of Star Wars getting picked on by kids in an older grade who were also fans of Star Wars, and the older kids were picking on the younger kids because they liked the Ewoks cartoon. So, like, uh. this mentality is not new. This gatekeeping, this you are, you are not the right kind of fan, I want you gone, th- none of this is new. Like, you can, you can look up, you know, hate mail campaigns against comic book writers going back decades and decades, well before the, the internet. The difference is that the internet has made it easier for the people who behave like that to find the people that they want to harass. So instead of being limited to whoever's in your neighborhood or your town, you can now harass somebody across the damn globe. So what the internet has done is it has enabled jerks to be jerks on a much grander scale. And they are certainly very loud. But, like, this is going back a ways. This was, oh, God, this was five years ago now. Um, And this isn't even fandom-related, but the mentality's the same, so stick with me. Uh, There was an article that I wrote for Cracked.com that, uh, back when that was, like, still a valid valid thing, that (laughs) was, it was an an experience article. It was eight uh, eight things you learn as a straight guy who cross-dresses, because cross-dresser was how I identified at the time. And the comment section on that, the the way that Crack's comment section worked, anybody could comment, but then you could, uh, other users could either upvote or downvote those comments, a little bit like Reddit. Um, Here is a big key thing about the Crack site, though. You only were allowed so many downvotes per article. So people couldn't you, you couldn't just spam all the com- downvoting all the comments you didn't agree with because you'd use up your like 10 downvotes or whatever. But the thing so what that meant was when I looked at the comment section on that article, virtually everything that was cruel to me and was attacking me, which was first of all, the numerical minority of comments, but every single one of those was downvoted to hell. So what that taught me was that, these people are loud, and they want you to think there's a lot of them. There aren't. They are the minority. So that's something that I always try and keep in my head. Because in my experience since then has borne that out. These people are very, very loud, and they, and they have to be. Because the louder they are, the more of a force they appear to be. But that just makes them... Slightly more irritating and sometimes harder to ignore, but no, I don't think I don't think things are worse. I think just the mechanisms and the uh, tools to hand just allow the, allow these individuals to be worse. If that makes sense, I feel like the people who are bad were always like pulling this nonsense, and they would have been doing it even if the internet wasn't around. They they just they can do it much more. Yes, for sure. Like you, you've always had the bullies, but now the bullies have a bigger platform and more keyboards. <laughs> now, now the bullies can create bots, and they can and they can completely spam your feed. Yeah, joy. Oh yes, I had uh, my nephew, and because uh, he's getting into, I think high school next year, and he was like, "So who did you hang out with in high school?" And I was like, "You want to know the real people I hung out with, uh, Brennan? I hung out. I didn't hang out with the jocks or the." People, I hung out with the nerdy kids 
who wouldn't threaten each other with, I'm going to punch you. They were the ones who were the nerdy stoners who'd go, hey, I'm going to hack your IP address, and I'm going to get the FBI on your door if you mess with me. <laughs> uh, see, theater kid right here. So that that was... We, we were too busy playing improv games. Yes, I was always the... Uh, I did a lot of art stuff in school, so I was, I was art club president for my high school for three of my four years. Wow, nice. Which I'm going to have my old art teacher come on... Uh, at a later date to talk about art and art history. And she actually has a story because besides my pop culture episodes on Thursdays, I do conspiracy theory Thursdays and I'm doing a Loch Ness episode. And when she used to live in England, she has a story that she told me before when I was in high school about when she was a little girl and how they were going past Loch Ness and she saw these humps in the water. And she has this story. She's like, I'm just remembering it. She's also probably like 10 at the time. She's like, you can take it with a grain of salt. She's like, I know what I saw. And I'm like, that's just so cool. <laughs> I was like, yeah, if you can record that for me, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm like, even though you don't find it interesting, I know other people like myself do. Which is, which is pretty cool. Now with the, like with the, you said you have a theater background that I know that with that, a lot of the theater kids uh, that are, how do I put it? A lot of theater kids go into stuff like drag and all that kind of stuff that have that same sense of, uh, I guess, the same type of personality and things. Um, I mean, like, it's, it's kind of a cliched observation that, like, all, all guys in theater are gay. Um, <laughs> but, like, but the, the, the thing is, it's, it is a... It's a pastime and it's a passion that really doesn't care who you are, only cares what you can do. So, you know, coming into a to a theater situation, it doesn't matter who you're attracted to. It doesn't matter who you identify as. Can you be this character for the course of this show? That's all that matters. So I think that by its nature makes it very accepting because you can't judge people by who they are day to day. You're not asking them to be themselves when they're on the stage. <laughs> yes. You're asking them to be Can you do that? What do you do in your own type? Who cares? That like has nothing to do with your ability to perform this part or sing this song or do whatever. So I think just the, the very nature of the art form basically completely disregarding who you are in your home life lends itself to being a, a bit of a refuge for people who might have things going on in their home life where they feel judged or uncertain or are questioning because largely those questions don't get asked in a theater environment. And even if they do get asked, nobody really cares. Um, like for myself though, yes, the trajectory was I did theater in high school and college and then I worked at a drag bar. I started performing drag. I later found burlesque and I still do that when I have the opportunity, which has been a while now, but <laughs> yeah. So like there was that trajectory for me. Certainly I am the cliche. There we go. <laughs> yeah. My girlfriend recently, cause I've always been into, I kind of look at it the same as like, uh, like special effects makeup, I've always been into doing like transforming yourself into this character by means of makeup and prosthetics and hair pieces. And I kind of take it as a more glamour version of that. 
and my girlfriend recently has got me into watching like RuPaul and just seeing the you have these very these guys just transform themselves into these like one that I I've come to find hilarious is uh I think she's gonna kill me if I get this name wrong uh, Bianca Del Rey I th- I think yeah and she yeah, just showed me the her. the movie Hurricane Bianca and I was like just seeing the, how that story and how they the the drag race when they were on the competition I was like this is pretty interesting I like their stories and how they transform themselves where some of them are like very very like you can't you you can't be a beautiful woman and then you're like whoa holy crap <laughs> you're like how did you do that. <laughs> Dude, the funny thing is, like, I, I haven't done, like, I haven't done a drag show, something that was exclusively a drag show, in over a decade at this point. I've just been doing burlesque. Um, I actually don't think I'd be any good at drag anymore. And what I mean by that is, like, at this point, there isn't a lot of contrast, because my, since my day-to-day self has already drifted feminine. Yes. Um, like, back... Uh, God, I'm old. Back about 15 years ago or so, um, there was a much stronger difference between how I looked when I showed up at a place where I was going to perform and how I looked when I had everything on. But at this point, you know, I've grown my own hair out. I've never really done the like the real over-the-top glammy, draggy makeup. That's never been my speed. But between the fact that I don't usually use wigs anymore unless I'm cosplaying. It's my own hair, and I'm just I'm just um, you know slapping the makeup palette that I like on my face as opposed to trying to redesign my face <laughs> through contouring and everything else. Like, there's very little transformation that goes on anymore. There used to be a lot more, not so much now. So like, I I feel like I would be a poor drag queen at this point, which is fine because I don't do I. I do burlesque now, so all I have to be good at is taking my clothes off, and I'm very good at that. I was like, especially with that, you don't have a lot of the, uh, when it comes, like, with drag, with burlesque, you don't have to worry about making these extravagant costumes anymore. Well, Because the craftsmanship I saw on that show, those costumes were, oh, my God. I'm like, I'm a cosplayer, and I'm like, this is, holy crap. Okay, so here's the thing. It depends on the burlesque performer. Now, I I can't sew. I can't make my own costumes, and I can't afford to get custom stuff. So, like, I work very basic. But there are performers. So, like, as elaborate as you've seen drag queen performers look, imagine something of similar complexity, similarly elaborate, but you have to be able to easily take it off while dancing. That is the level that some burlesque performers are operating at. And especially if you get into something like Nerdlesque, which has a lot of cosplay theme numbers, you will have elaborate cosplay pieces that not only does it have to look good, you have to be able to move in it, and you have to be able to take it off smoothly in time to music. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if this would be Nerdlesque. I don't know if this would be Nerdlesque. I just saw somebody, I think my girlfriend sent me as a TikTok. Apparently there is a thing called... Shrek less, or it's like a Shrek burlesque. I think that might only be a TikTok thing. I suspect. <laughs> oh no, this I is like a person surprised. on stage. It actually looked like a actual person performing in a show. Okay, yeah. So they, it, someone probably has one signature number, but the idea of Shrek less as a thing, that's probably TikTok to blame for that. But yeah, no, I totally buy that somebody has. Like I have seen. I have, oh my God. So let me just try and think here. I have seen, 
Deadpool numbers. I have seen Thanos numbers. I have seen uh, Hela from Thor Ragnarok with the massive helmet numbers. I've I have seen stuff you would not believe. Oh, that that is that is crazy. I just saw that and I was like, "Wow, that's that's something you don't see every day." Yeah, I kind of think what was the most elaborate? I think most elaborate I got was probably my Sith number, my my Dark Jedi uh, Sith Lord number, and that was just because of the nature of the costume I got. It like assembles in a weird way, and so like the. The, the robes for it aren't really robes. It's like two separate fabric pieces that are kept in place by this belt. So, like, it's oddly elaborate to put on and take off. <laughs> but that's about as complicated as I get. I, I have, like, two pairs of tearaway pants, and the rest is I'm just working with what I got. Because, <sighs> like I said, I, I can't sew. I like to think I can move decently and that I can project character quite well, but I can't. I can't create these costumes. Oh, yeah. the my Probably my favorite. The one that I've, I've done... Because like I said, I'm I'm not I don't have a lot of money either, but I do kind of budget cosplay. For instance, when I built a Batman suit, I took uh, I told my friend I was like I never thought I'd see this in my Walmart cart. I bought because I couldn't afford the muscle suits. Those things are hella expensive for a really good one. Is like a thousand dollars for a, and so I saw a crappy uh, what was it a uh, what is that show? Those bro dudes uh, a Jersey Shore. Uh, muscles and I was like I could take that and make it better and I told my friend I was like I never thought that I would ever be buying a Jersey Shore costume from Walmart and I took the shirt and the chain it came with and just chunked in the trash I was like I just need the the skin part of this and I just took it and took cardboard and tape and just kind of uh fixed up made it hard and then uh, I took uh what is it thermals because his suit has kind of got this scratchy look and that material yeah. is very expensive, so I was like, uh, what's the closest thing? I was like, thermals. It has that. So I'll just take some pencils and, you know, graphite and go over it and kind of make it, give it that contour. And so I had that over it, and I used, uh, if you ever need to make, like, a utility belt, cigarette packs or toilet paper rolls that you can fold into each other. <laughs> so I did that, and I painted them up, and I have a buddy who is, he does custom figures and, like, props and stuff, so I was like, hey... I can build it if you can paint it to look realistic for me. <laughs> that, that's awesome. And honestly, that alone, that's more than I could do. Like, I, I think the most that I've ever done myself was, so, like, I could sew patches on things. Like, I, I, I have a Fix-It Felix number, so I sewed the 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 F, F logo thing that he has on his hat onto uh. a hat. Um, and I, I don't have a number for this, but I have a Kaylee from Fireflies. So like Ooh. I, I sewed those patches onto the jumpsuit. That's about it. That's all I can do. Yes. My grandma actually, I did a, when I did art class, I, I'll go into the story after I say this, but my grandma taught me how to sew when I was younger. Cause for me it was cause I want to do cosplay, but for her, she was teaching me because she's like, I want you to have these skills that, cause she grew up in the great depression on a farm and stuff. And they had to make what they had to do. And she's like, I want you to have these skills just in case you ever need to make your own clothes or you need either for yourself or to make money in times of hardship. And she, she was a prophet, apparently. Yeah, and I was like, okay. And so for me, like I said, my intent was I'm going to be able to make cosplay. So now I use it for cosplay and like doing like patches or I have a vest that I just did and it's got a whole bunch of stitching on it. Uh, it's uh, all punked up and everything. 
And with that story, and she told me this too, and uh, like I said, she was the religious person, but this is her thing. She's like, I'm going to teach you sewing. I know a lot of people consider this, you know, a feminine thing, but I'm going to tell you this right now. Nothing to do, she held up a needle and a thread, and she said, look at these two things. Now, do these have anything to do with your sexuality or what you like or your genitalia? And I was like, no, that has nothing to do with my body or anything like that. And she said, correct. Now, this is why this is, you can be a man and you can sew. So when I did my art class, that was my first lesson, and my art teacher loved that I said that. I, Because we had a bunch of different, you know, guys, girls, and the thing. I was like, first lesson, we're learning to sew. You can be a man, or you can be whatever you want, and you can sew. Sewing does not have a gender, and I did the same example with the needle and the thread. And she, my art teacher just loved that. She's like, thank you for saying that. I have so many people that didn't want to come to this because they're like, oh, that's not for me. That's for girls. Da, 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 da. And I was like, hey, I can tell you. And I showed him pictures on the on our big smart board. I was like, this is with these skills. I've made this, and I've made that. I was like, it comes in handy. <laughs> yeah, th- there are very few actions that are truly legitimately gendered. Honestly, uh, you know, getting a pap, getting a, a pap smear and getting a prostate exam. Those are gendered activities. Almost everything else, no. Stop assigning gender to this stuff. Yes, uh, it's just like I, I understand. Like when you have like with kids, like I there's the extreme and there's the other ones like doing like I'm gonna make them only play with boy toys or I'm gonna make them play with girl toys. I'm like, if they like it, just take them in the toy aisle and go. What do you want? I, that that was how I approached things with my kid. I will say, though, this was... Even when you have that approach, it still can be a pain in the butt because her favorite color is blue, and she loves dogs. So when she was younger and, like, wanted, you know, like, blue dog clothes, all that stuff was in the boys' section because for some reason along the line, not only is blue for boys and pink is for girls, but boys get dogs and girls get cats, apparently. <laughs> So, like, we frequently had to go to the boys' section to find her, like, T-shirts and stuff, not because of, not because she's like, I want to look like a boy. It's like, no, it's because she likes, she likes dogs in the color blue. You morons put it in this section, so yeah. that's where we're going. You're like, it's both the, or, it's like, it's both the T9, or it's both the 5T, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, so stupid. <laughs> that's why, like, I love, like, with, I don't know if they used to do it back in the day, that now, when it comes to, like, fandom stuff, they're not, like... Here's the Star Wars stuff for girls, and here's the Star Wars stuff for boys. It's just like, here's Star Wars stuff. Yeah, it, some things, I, I think here's the difference, is that um, with stuff like that that's been around for a while, the merch either, it was just presumed that there was only one gender audience anyway so they didn't have to say here's the boys version here's the girl version they assumed only one of them was taking part in it anyway or they just didn't care yeah like, it's, I, it's crazy I, I think yeah i think for uh for a lot of time like take something like my little pony i know it's a weird example especially now with the revival and the bronies and everything <laughs> but you know the, there wasn't really anything in that toy line to appeal to boys but you know they assumed there weren't any boys involved. Uh, yeah, I understand. It's it's uh, one of those things, like I said, I've always been like, hey, what do you like? And just show them. Because yeah. that's how I was a kid. Like, I played, I guess, I'm, I'm, I look at it the same way, like, 
yep, the girls have the, the Barbies, and we have the action figures. They're pretty much the same thing. Yeah. The, the only difference is whether or not you have to brush out the hair. Yes. I've actually had one of my friends, she's like, I wish they would have made the hair sometimes when the Barbies like the action figures, because y'all don't have to brush them, and it is a pain in the ass. Yeah, get, get some of that hard plastic hair stuff. That's where it's at. Yes. But yeah, definitely, like I said, uh, is there any links you want to tell or any projects that you're working on? Uh, too many. Uh, so, like, the main thing, if you want to find my stuff, um, Council of Geeks is going to be the big thing. You'll find me on Twitter, on Instagram, but mostly on YouTube. Um, you can also find some of my stuff under Vera Wild. That's for stuff more dedicated to my... Um, my gender fluid life experience, although that comes up at Council of Geeks as well. But uh, so you can also look for Vera Wild. Wild is spelled W Y L D E because I had to spell it the most pretentious way that I could possibly think. Um, so you look for those things and you will find most of my stuff. And as I mentioned, there's YouTube's, there's podcasts. There's... Plug those things into a search en- engine, you'll find me. Awesome. Now, what are the names of your podcast again? Okay, so the podcast, um, the the podcast that I do right now, there is What the Frell, which I do with Jesse Gender, and we go through every episode of the TV show Farscape. That is on the Council of Geeks podcast feed. So if you look up Council of Geeks podcast, that's where you will find that. And there is also Tough Like a Girl, which I do with my partner Liz, and that's over on the Fire and Water podcast network. I'm spread all over the place. Good luck trying to find my stuff. <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks for coming on the show. I had an awesome conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And thanks again for coming on. And uh, this is going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad podcast. Bye, everybody. Enjoy the madness. You are now leaving the Phantom Squad podcast. I don't want to go.